I'd like to have you turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 14 of the second chapter of the book of Colossians. It's a little epistle of Paul uh, after Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So it's not hard to find. You turn to that with me. And hold the New Testament open on your lap, if you will. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. For those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with pervasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made, not, made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. One of the most fascinating places to visit in the great northwest are these uh, fish stairs. That doesn't sound too exciting, but in these places, you're, you're able to look in on one of the great mysteries of nature. Well, these tremendous creatures, these salmon, some of them are as big as, you know, weigh 50 pounds, are born in the fresh waters of the Northwest. And after they spawn and lay their eggs, a 
mystery occurs within them that nobody's really been able to explain. Something inside of them draws them to swim downstream hundreds of miles to the salt water of the Pacific. Many of them die. But if they survive, some of them do, as long as four years they live in the salt water of the Pacific and then something strange occurs again in them that draws them to swim back upstream to the very place where they were born. And they have tagged these great creatures and found that they go back hundreds of miles struggling against the tide. Sometimes the tide, is the, 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 the current of those streams is as, is as strong as 25 miles an hour. They struggle all the way back to the very spot where they were spawned and born. And as I watch these creatures, these uh, stairs that are there are placed along these roots that these salmon uh, swim. And you can see them leaping into the air. You've probably seen pictures of them as they climb these ladders that are there to assist them in moving from one stream to the next as they head back to where they were, where they were born. I thought as I watched them that these creatures are not, only, are not the only things that struggle against the tide and the, and the wind. You and I know something about that. I talked this morning to strugglers. It's not always possible for us to travel with the wind to our back. And we know as fresh as the taste in our mouth what it means to struggle against the tide. That word struggle looms large in this passage. It's the tenth word of the second chapter and it's the Greek word agoni which means the labor of a laboring man. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know before he gets too far into this epistle that he understands he's dealing with the fact that life is an experience of struggle, that men and women struggle in life. You know that and I know it. It seems pretty strange that here is a man who is probably the best Christian who has ever lived who says that he is struggling with a struggle that's like an agony to just survive. And he's writing to Christians in Colossae and Laodicea and some he has never met, but he understands that, unique, that, that struggles are not unique, that characteristic of their life is this battle to live, this struggle against the, the, the winds and the tides of life. Now what some of you may be thinking this morning is this. I know what you're fixing to say. You're fixing to say, uh, this is what you're thinking. Preacher, I know what you're fixing to say. You're fixing to say, buck up, bucko. For you don't, you're not the only one who's had problems and your problems are not any worse than anybody else's and, and, and they're not any more difficult than the people who lived in Paul's day. Uh, I know what you're fixing to say. That's not really what I'm about. As there's not much help in that. What I want us to do this morning, I want us to take an honest look, an objective look at our struggles, their reasons, a warning, and the remedies. Now it doesn't take an exegetical genius to understand where Paul's struggles originated, where they, where they came from. You just need to remember where he is. He's in prison. 
and he's longing to be where he isn't. He's cut off from his friends and he's longing to be out from there, but he can't. He's sitting on the edge of a chain and he's waiting for the lunatic Nero to decide what he's going to do with him and he's longing to be where he isn't, but he's trapped. You know that feeling, don't you? You, you, you feel trapped, right? Not too long ago, a lady came to my office from a, from a neighboring city. She'd been referred. Somebody said, you know, why don't you go talk to the pastor of First Baptist Church in Durant and maybe in some counseling he'll help you. And she came in to talk to me and she told me about a terrible marriage. Their husband was abusive and brutal and she had just recently become a Christian and he had just kind of turned up the heat on his brutality. And she began to sob. She said, I just wish I could get out. She said, I, I'd like to walk away from this and get out of it. But I'm trapped, she said. I feel so trapped. She said, I have children. And I, have a, I've got, I don't have a job. I can't take care of them. And I'm a new Christian and I feel a definite responsibility to stay there in my marriage. But she said, you know what I would do if I had my choice? I'd just get out of here. But I can't. If I could just get out of this job, if I could just get out of this marriage, if I could just move from this neighborhood, this town, if I could just get out from underneath this heavy financial burden, if I could just escape this, this habit that's bound me for years, if I could just get to there, wherever there is, but I'm trapped. Does that sound like anybody you know? And it's not difficult to understand the struggles of the Laodiceans, the Colossians, the recipients of this letter. You can understand it by what he wishes for them. He wished for them encouragement in verse 2 because he knew that they were struggling with discouragement. Who isn't? These folks were discouraged. Who is not? Now you may pretend that you've never known discouragement, but discouragement is as old as man. Elijah got so discouraged sitting under the juniper tree, he asked God to kill him. And the psalmist writes about life in a pit, and the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, at one time we despaired of life. Paul is saying that, we despaired of life. Discouragement. This year, 200,000 Americans will try to kill themselves and 25,000 will succeed. Every three minutes, somebody tries to take his life and every 21 minutes, he succeeds. You think discouragement and despair and depression is not a part of our lives? It's at epidemic proportions. And he wishes for them that their hearts would be knit together in love because he understands that they're struggling with loneliness. Admiral Byrd once wrote a fascinating book about his ex experiences in the Antarctic. Before he set out on an expedition, he kind of looked forward to the solitude. But after he kind of got settled into his frigid accommodations, he got lonely. I mean, he despaired of loneliness. And finally one morning he wrote in his diary, I had to admit to myself this morning that I was lonely, so lonely I could hardly stand it. This loneliness is basically too big for me. Who has not known loneliness? 
And the Apostle Paul gives us a little clue as to this struggle when he says that their hearts were being knit together in love and he suggests to us that loneliness causes us to feel that we're separated and, and segregated and isolated and fragmented. That's what loneliness does. It makes you feel like you're the only one left. You're the only one in the world. And he prays that they might know this knitting together of love that will help in the, in the struggle of loneliness. Problems and they can find no solutions. They have mysteries and riddles for which there are no, there are no uh, explanations. And they're saying, why doesn't God let us have a little clue as to why this is going on with me? Why me? If I could just understand, I think I could handle it better. If I just had some reason, some light, I think I could endure, but I'm in the dark. I wish God would tell me why. It's the universal question that has hounded man forever and with which man has always struggled. I don't understand why this has to be the way it is. Now these struggles lead to a warning. That warning is really found in verse 8, and I want you to look at it because verse 8 establishes a principle. Look at the principle. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. And there many, there's much scholarship that suggests that that statement there, the elementary principles of the world, is a reference to the demonic kingdom, the occult world, and not after the... the, the, not after the uh, uh, rather than according to Christ. Now here's the principle, I want you to get this, I think it's relevant. That strugglers are susceptible, are vulnerable to being seduced, to being taken, he calls, captive. You see, sometimes the pain of our struggles is so great that we'll do anything to get relief. Sometimes, in our effort to escape the dilemma of the struggle, we'll grasp on to things that are destructive and ungodly and harmful. And what he's saying is this, he's saying, be careful in the struggles of life, lest you reach out grasping for straws and lay hold upon something that is destructive and, 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 and dangerous. For example... I know some people who, who, have got, who got so lonely, the pain of their loneliness was so great that in an effort to find some help for their loneliness, they embraced a relationship that was devastatingly destructive. I mean, they reached out in their desire to have uh, you know, acceptability and joined with the wrong crowd or latched on to some something or some relationship that was not of God. You know, and sometimes our discouragement is so severe it causes us to look for some kind of synthetic artificial encouragement. And so some folks shoot a synthetic encouragement into their veins just to get a temporary relief from the pain and when they come crashing back down, it's worse than when they left. And I know some folks 
who are so unhappy with the way it was over here and they had such a desire to get over there that they ran away from an unhappy home life, etc. They ran away from a bad situation and got into a worse one. You know anybody like that? I mean, in my desire, I've known young people like this, in a desire to get away from an unhappy home, they joined, they, they left to go over there and got married, and it was ten times worse. They, they left a bad situation to get to a worse one. And sometimes people who are so confused with life and have no answers, they'll latch on to false doctrine. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying they have such a desire for answers, they were so confused that they accepted these answers that were not answers. Uh, a lady came up to me while I was down at, uh, at Kerrville. And uh, she had been a Christian for about a month. She had left this occult group, this religious group, and had become a Christian. And her husband was a leader of this group. By the way, it's the fastest growing religion in America today. And you can imagine what kind of persecution she had, had, has been enduring. As a matter of fact, she said at one time she uh, feared for her own life. And it's caused tremendous conflict and pressure on her marriage upon every other kind of uh, relationship. But she's hanging in there as a Christian. And she told me this. She said, just as we kind of finished our conversation, she said, you know, there was a time when I, I you know, I lived in a terrible home. My parents were, were fighting all the time. And she said, I just had this terrible home life. And she said, there was a time when I reached out to these people and they reached out to me and they had answers that I thought I needed and they had uh, kind of, they were there and kind of available to help me in the ways I thought I needed help. And she said, I just latched onto them like a leech. And she said, well, you listen to this? She said, they are both, this, this group boasts in their meetings fastest growing religion in America, that the, great, that the greatest number of converts or proselytes that are coming into this group are from Southern Baptist churches. I like, that like blew my mind. She said they are boasting of the fact that they're building these gigantic church buildings all across America in strategic places and they're filling it up with Christians who, are, who have been dissatisfied and and confused and empty and are just vulnerable to these kinds of things. I, I know what she's talking about. That sometimes in our struggles with life, we'll hook on to anything we can to get a little temporary relief. And he's warning about that. Well, what are the remedies? If you say that there is... A, uh, a problem and you know warning what can we do about it well I think there are three remedies three ways of help now I want you to look at them with me there first is found in the 13th and 14th verses now what you find in the 13th and 14th verse uh, verses of this passage is a is a marvelous theology about the cross event 
Now that seems kind of strange to me, and when I was trying to exegete this passage of Scripture, I was thinking that what Paul is talking about in, in this letter to the Colossians is, is the cross event, and everything else is peripheral to that. Not really. What he's talking about here is the struggle of life, the conflict of life, and he's planting the cross in the midst of it as its solution. You need to see that. For what he's saying as he plants this uh, cross passage right in the midst of a discussion on struggles, what he's saying is this, that God has entered our life at need level. Can you underline that? That God is not some God who is oblivious to our needs living somewhere out in the great beyond but he is a God who is conscious of our needs and who has entered life at the level of our needs. So that if you're lonely, there's a, need, there's a solution, there's, there is a, a companion. That You see what I'm saying? He has entered life at need level. And he's telling us, you agonize, you know agony, so do I know how to agonize. You... you, you you are struggling. I want you to know that here I am and I'm willing to do anything for you. Oh, how glorious that is. That God is telling us there is nothing I will not do for you and the cross is the proof of it. Here I am. I'm willing to help you. And there's a tremendous amount of encouragement in, the, in knowing that he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not with him give us all things? If he's willing to do that at need level, what is he willing to do? What's he not willing to do? Now watch this. To those of us who feel entrapped, he says, I've got, I've got keys. I'm a deliverer. That's what his name means. I've come to give you freedom. I've come to set you free. I've come to bring release. As a matter of fact, John's vision of him in the book of Revelation was that he had keys on his girdle, which suggests that when he came out of the grave, he came out with the proof of the fact that he has a key to unlock every prison and every chain that binds us. And you can turn to 1 Peter sometime and discover there that it says that in the interim between, some interpret this way, between the resurrection and the ascension, he went to the prisons and set them free, the spirits that were in prison. Because he is a God who has keys to our locks. Lovelace was right. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. If I have freedom in my love and in my soul am free, only angels that soar above enjoy such liberty. John Knox was put in prison by Mary Queen of Scots. He thought he was going to die there. They came to listen to him preach. He preached more to more people through his cell window than when he preached in his church. And one day he looked out the window of his prison to the spire of his great church and said, I have never been more free. I think, he said, I shall never fear the face of mortal man again. I tell you, if you feel entrapped, there is freedom. And to those of us who are discouraged 
He plants the cross right down in the midst of our discouragement and says, wait a little while, there is hope. You see, when, when Good Friday came, in the darkness of it, folks turned away from the cross in despair, despairing of life. God said, just wait a minute, for the darkness of Good Friday will become the sunrise of Good Sunday. There's hope for you. So that if you're in the darkness of depression and discouragement, God said, just hang in there. Light is coming. Morning is coming. Dawn is coming. And for those of us who are lonely, the cross event says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I turned my back on my son and he felt that terrible estrangement and separation and fragmentation and he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the reason why I turned my back on my son was that I'd never have to turn my back on you. So that because he withdrew himself and his conscious presence from his own son in the cross event, it's a guarantee that he'll never leave you. And for those of us who are confused about life and can't understand why what is happening to us is happening to us, he says, I have answers. If I have a solution and an answer to the sin problem, which is the greatest dilemma on earth, I mean, how can God be just and the justifier at the same time? I had a solution for that. There's no problem that I can't solve. That's what the cross event is saying. So that jammed down in the earth, in the, on the turf where you and I labor and struggle is the reminder that God has a solution to our problems. And the cross is the proof of it. But there's a second remedy, and there's some comfort in knowing that, you see. The second remedy is found in verse 6, and it says, As ye have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. There is a, a tremendous um, performance orientation to, Christian, to the Christian faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. There is a great linkage between our understanding of our acceptance from God and our performance. In other words, I feel like that I've got to perform well for God to accept me. I want to tell you something revolutionary revolutionary pronouncement God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with your performance you see the Bible theme is the theme of grace that's what the cross is about and grace says grace is the is the theology that God's acceptance of us is not based upon how well we perform as a matter of fact there are two types of people there are the triers the strugglers and the trusters in the Bible and the triers are rejected and the trusters are accepted there's no way for you to live the Christian life you can't reproduce the life of Christ no way you can try and struggle with that as hard as you want to you'll never do it because that's supernatural and miraculous you see, man's life is bounded by two supernatural, miraculous events. On the front end is his conversion. How many of you are willing to say this morning, I've been converted, but I did it myself? I converted myself. No. 
what you're willing to say is, if you are converted, I have been converted, I've been born again by trusting Jesus Christ. I just came and trusted Him and God did the work. He did the work of rebirth, regeneration, whatever you call it. On the other end of that boundary, the other boundary is the resurrection. Now who is willing to say, one of these days I'm going to die but I'm going to resurrect myself? Nobody's willing to say that, honestly. What I am willing to say is, I'm going to die, but God's going to raise me from the dead. That's His promise. So that these two miraculous supernatural events are beyond man's abilities and capacities. What about in between? What about the miracle of the Christian life? I mean, who can live up to the Sermon on the Mount? The principles that Jesus taught, who can live those out? Nobody. That's supernatural and miraculous. Nobody except one. There is one person who can live the Christian life and his name is Jesus. And what Paul is saying is this, just like you trusted God, trusted Christ for your salvation, you let the daily living of your life be in the same kind of trustful submission. Stop trying and start trusting. I mean, those of us that are struggling, just trust, he's saying. There is a third solution. It's found, a remedy, it's found in verse 10. It says, you have been made complete in him. I like the J.B. Phillips translation of that. It says this, you have fullness of life in Christ. Now, that says to me four things. I don't have time but just to mention them, then work for them. Take heart. When it says that I have fullness of life in Christ, I believe that means that I have a world to live in. This is my Father's world. This world is the Father's house. It's a world, it's a world where the bruised reed is never broken, where the sparrow is never forgotten, where the very hair of our head, is, head are, are numbered. This is my Father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong oft seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. I have a world to live in. I have a work to live for. I believe that the Christian has been entrusted with the greatest commitment in all of life. Something to live for that has eternal significance. I hear the psalmist crying, Establish thou the work of my hands. The work of my hands, establish thou it. It's the cry of every man. I want to do something that will last. Well, this is it. Henley Barnett tells about the guy that he taught him Sunday school. In Sunday school when he was a kid, had a terrible speech impediment, just, just pretty ignorant. But he said, 21 boys surrendered to preach out of that man's Sunday school class. And somebody asked him, what was the secret? He said, I don't know the secret except that God has all of me. I tell you, he wants nothing more and he'll be satisfied with nothing less than that. And so Paul came to Athens and he saw everybody in Athens turn to idols. But he had a dream that Athens, all of Athens would be saved because God had placed on him that great responsibility. I have, thirdly, a self I can live with. I can live with me. 
You know why? Because he said he has forgiven all our transgressions. He's counseled the debt by nailing it to the cross. And there's a beautiful biblical illustration of that for when somebody had a debt they couldn't pay and they had to foreclose on the debt, what they would do, they'd take the debt and they'd go out and they'd nail it to the doorpost of a man's house. It was the worst thing you could do. It brought terrible shame when, when somebody walked by and saw that this guy had a debt he couldn't pay. Paul says, I can live with me because God has taken the debt I owe, the sin I've committed, and He's nailed it to the cross of Jesus. And it's been counseled. This debt's not on me anymore. I can live with me. It means that I have a master I can die for. St. Francis of Assisi was the guy they ran out of church because he laughed too much. He said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd make Jesus Christ master of all of them. And William Booth was asked the secret of his great missionary and um, Christian enterprise. He said, I don't know if there is a secret except that I have given the very best I have to Jesus. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. I'm talking this morning to strugglers. John Claypool has a marvelous book called The Tracks of a Fellow Struggler. My encouragement to fellow strugglers today is to the cross we come and cling and place our faith and trust in Him and in Him be made complete. Let's pray together. Father, now I pray that you'll draw to yourself those who need to make public decision for Christ to find completeness and fullness of life in Him. And help us in the struggles to learn how just to trust, to place before you our life and faith, believing that you're in control. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. There are three invitations this morning. Would you hear this, please? The first invitation is an invitation to salvation. There's no way you can save yourself. Make yourself right with God, acceptable to Him, worthy. I invite you to come this morning in faith, in simple faith, claiming the provision that God has made through Jesus Christ, trusting Him, trust, trust it all to Him. I ask you to come this morning, those of us who need to walk a deeper walk with the Lord, rededication of life, those who are dealing with a decision about church membership to let God's will be done in your life and you'll come this morning perhaps to join the church while we stand to sing we invite you to come right away come on